Hello and welcome to our July Publications Podcast. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds, Chair of the Lupus Forum. And this month, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Professor Maria Dallera from the University of California, San Francisco. So welcome, Maria. Great, Ed. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. It's great to be here. So it's good to have you with us because we've got some great papers this month. Um, so we've got four we've chosen to discuss, um, which are all available on the website as usual. So we've got um, one about medication costs that we're going to start with. We've got two on lupus nephritis and then finishing up with one on neuropsychiatric SLA. So shall we jump straight in with that first one, which is actually um, a paper you were involved in, isn't it? Yes, thank you so much, Ed. So this is a paper that uh, we recently published, and these this is using data from our California Longitudinal Lupus Registry, which is a population-based longitudinal registry in the San Francisco Bay Area that we started in 2014. We follow patients yearly with in-depth structured interviews in which we ask them about a variety of patient-reported outcomes, but we also see patients in person and do physician assessments. So the question that we posed to this cohort was, how do medication cost concerns, so inability, for instance, for our patients to afford medications, missing doses, not being able to refill medications, those types of things, how do those issues impact health outcomes? And specifically, patient-reported outcomes, we looked at a variety of them, including patient-reported disease activity with an index called the SLAC, which you'll see in the paper, as well as outcome measures of depression. Uh, we use the PROMISE measures for various health, <clears throat> health physical function measures, pain, fatigue. We looked at social measures as well. Um, and what we found was not surprisingly that medication cost concerns negatively impacted those outcomes. So patients had worse patient reported outcomes if they were not able to receive their medications in a timely manner. We also found that the prevalence of medication cost concerns was about 27%, which is quite significant in our cohort. Um, and then we also looked at this in a longitudinal way over the course of time. And that's what you can see here on the slide. And we found that baseline cost concerns were not associated with changes in patient-reported disease activity per the slack over time. But over the course of time, there continued to be worse outcomes consistently over years. And so I think this is a very, this is an important paper because I think that all of us who take care of lupus patients need to start thinking about this issue. We're all very busy in our clinics and we all have many things to think about with our patients, but I think that medication adherence and delving deeper into why some of our patients aren't able to adhere to medications, what are those issues that are surrounding their ability to get medications, are important for us to understand. Um, because as we follow our patients, it's important to know, are patients actually taking the medications we think they are taking? And that's a very important question that we have to ask and answer so we know how to better care for our patients. 
and help them hopefully uh, in, in ways adhere to their medications and maybe get them set up with services to help them afford medications. It's a very difficult issue, especially where I am in, in the United States, where I think you know drug costs are truly escalating. And for many of our patients, it's more difficult to get the medications that we prescribe for them. Yeah, I, I, it's... Uh... You know, I've been thinking about similar subjects recently in some of the research we've been doing because we've been we were just looking at something that initially seemed quite simple about does this biomarker associate with this outcome in lupus? And it was really hard to show. And then two of my research fellows very cleverly worked out a way to analyze the socioeconomic status of the patients. And it completely changed the outcome, actually. And it just made me realize that it's something we don't look at enough in research, clinical trials, that you can't expect to get a predictable outcome if you're not accounting for the whole, all of this person's life. Cost of the medications and probably a lot of other things that go with that, I guess. Absolutely. And um, what was very interesting also, just to mention, because that's a very important point that you that you make. I think what was what was surprising to us too in our in our analyses was we all, we looked at a variety of you know covariates. Um, such as age, sex, uh, race, ethnicity, income level. Um, and for many of them, there was not a difference in patients that had cost, you know, concerns with medications versus not. The two that fell out as being different were patients who were on the public Medicare, which is our um, kind of public health insurance system for people that are with, over the age of 65, or younger but disabled, um, and then patients that were on biologics, interestingly, right? So that and that would make sense. That makes sense to us, right? Because the biologic medications in the US have very high copays. So it makes sense that it's gonna be more difficult uh, for patients to be able to receive those medications. Um, but I think you're right, approaching these issues in a holistic manner and thinking about all of the factors that influence health outcomes, you know, how patients do over the course of time, I think is going to be very important. And, and the last thing is that I think it's it's striking to me, and we haven't gotten there yet, for instance, even in my clinic, um, but the importance of having a multidisciplinary team, right, to try to help patients, especially with these issues uh, that affect uh, social determinants of health, you know, how can we help people with more of these financial issues it's very challenging, um, but the more that we can build up that aspect of our care with social services, I think the better we're going to be. It's just not an easy solution, is it? Yeah. And, um, you know, like it's, when I first read the title and the abstract, I thought this study is going to center in a lot on race and ethnicity. But it actually, that wasn't. The main that, that's not and, and that just shows how again this is something I've, I've said quite a few times on these podcasts is that we think that race and ethnicity are really important stratifiers in lupus studies but we don't always know how much that's due to maybe a different genetic background giving you more severe lupus versus is actually it's something to do with you know lifestyle or or, or or health socioeconomic factors or the region of the world you live in or some, something like that and I think what you're showing here is that if you measure the economic effects and the quality of life effects, then actually race and ethnicity stops mattering. 
Exactly. Yeah. Interesting yeah. and surprising, right? Yeah. Right. It's just a surrogate for other things in that sense. Correct. Right. Okay, so that seems like a good time to go on to the next one, which is, um, so I, I took a look at this one, which is another Dr. Sporin paper. So this was, um, this was an analysis done by, um, by the company, um, published in uh, ACNR. And what they did um, was, so Dr. Sporin has two RC, two big RCTs. There's a phase two, which is called Aura. And then there's a phase three, which is called Aurora. There's only one phase three in this case, not two, because lupus nephritis is a rare disease, so it doesn't need two. But what they've done, like a few other programs, is once you've got the key evidence in, is to then pull the trials to get a bigger population. And by having a bigger population, you can probably look at some of these, again, some of these these stratifiers and these different groups of people um, and some of the and some of the subgroup analyses to try and get a bit more information um, so here what what we've got is the the, the pooled population on both studies um, you've got 37 percent described as white seven percent south asian 30% other asian i think mostly east asian and 10 percent black of and overall the those groups, 25% described as Hispanic. You got 14% of patients were a pure class five. 24% um, were a combination of class five and another lesion. Um, and the rest of them were proliferative. So the first thing is just looking at the efficacy. It, it, I think it pretty much backs up what we already thought from the phase three. So if you take complete renal response, like shown on the slide there, um, Voc this is, of course, voclosporin combined with mycophenolate was 44% complete renal response, whereas placebo combined with mycophenolate only 23%, so a 21% delta, so similar to what we got from the main study. Um, the bit that I, I, I honed in on was the part about the, the um, subgroup analyses, um, because we know from a lot of other lupus nephritis studies that there have been important effects of subgroups that do better or worse. So here, um, so one thing here is, as always in these analyses, is the, the N is really important in the subgroups because you can take something like if you try to compare female patients with male patients and then you'll, you'll just get a, a stronger p-value for the female patients than the male patients, just because there's more of them. Nothing, and, and so it's important not just to look at p-values, to look at the actual point estimate as well. Um, but I think the important main thing here was across most of the subgroups they looked at, they didn't see many differences. So male, female didn't see anything. Age didn't see anything. Race didn't see anything which is not the same for all lupus nephritis therapies, I think. Um, region of the world didn't see anything. When it came to class of lupus nephritis, there was, it looked a bit like there was something. So it looked like the class three, the class four and the mixed were about equally good, but the class five was a bit less statistically significant. Maybe that's because it takes a bit longer to see the proteinuria reductions in the class five, or maybe the placebo outcomes aren't as bad in class five patients in terms of renal function. So that made it a smaller difference. Um, and when it came to 
lower AGFR was a bit worse, but again, that might just be because you're much more likely, you know, to get a bad outcome if you've already got a low AGFR. I don't, I don't know. So, um, yeah. So I thought. I, I mean, I think it, it, in terms of the clinic, I think it, it, it comes at a from for me in the UK, it comes at a in, in interesting time because we've just had our our government approval for voxlosporin. They've given it a very broad approval. Actually, normally they try to limit things in some way to a more severe group or, or or something like that. But in this case, it's actually is very open, and and this these data here support that, which I, I'm I'm sure they considered at the time they made the they made the agreement. So I'm I'm just starting to prescribe it. Are you using it in your practice now? Yes, that's exciting to hear that you now have it available to you to use. Yes, yeah. we are using this. And I think that the question on everybody's minds, right, is is how to start to choose between our approved therapies for lupus nephritis. For so many years we had we had no approved therapies, right? And we were using our conventional therapies, and now we have baclosporin uh, approved. We have belimumab approved. How do we position these in our in our yeah. treatment strategy? So we have been using a uh, baclosporin, um, and I think, as you said, these these data support that support their use across. I think a variety of subgroups. I also thought it was interesting, Ed, when you were speaking about the various subgroups thinking about, um, I remember that there was one analysis, right, that was done looking at uh, baseline levels of proteinuria. I think, was it greater than three and maybe less than three? Yes, um, I do remember that one, yeah. yeah. And and that both of, you know, both of those subgroups demonstrated efficacy of voclosporin over the control, which I found was interesting um, because that was different, right, than what was seen in the, in the Bliss LN trial. Oh um, yeah, good point. Yeah, where there was we saw a yeah. difference, uh, you know, in terms of that subgroup analysis, and so I thought that was that was interesting. Yeah. That was consistent here, um, but as you said, we didn't see statistical significance in the pure class five, um, but maybe that is, as you said, also just smaller numbers of patients in that subgroup. But the point estimate looked looked promising there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, yeah, so. I think, and, there, and there's other questions that I'm sure we're going to be debating on other days, like people that talk about how long do you continue these drugs for, um, and that you know after after you've got a remission, how long do you continue them for? And these people are debating whether you go in with everything at the start and taper them down, or you look for your worst patients. So it's it is time of time of a lot of change, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. And we've got another lupus nephritis paper next, haven't we? Yes, we do. This so this this paper I found to be very interesting, and I think you know this addresses a key question that we all have, which is: Are we able to predict the onset of lupus nephritis in our patients that we are following with systemic lupus? How do we do that? Uh, do we have biomarkers that can help us in that predictive capacity? Um, and so this was a study that was done out of out of Hong Kong, and they 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 looked at their longitudinal cohort of eight tertiary care centers in Hong Kong um, that had lupus. And so they amassed sixteen hundred lupus patients with a median duration of follow up of twenty one years. So this huge effort, 
And they divided the cohort into a, a training and validation set and then a testing set. In the training set, um, they determined that um, 845 of the patients eventually developed lupus nephritis and 707 of those were biopsy proven. Um, and after performing regression analysis, they found that univariate predictors of the onset of lupus nephritis included uh, young age of onset of lupus, and that was defined as less than 18 years of age, male sex, and anti-double-strand DNA positivity. Those were the, the three that were pulled out of the univariate analysis. And then what they did is they combined those variables and they added another variable, which was um, SLE disease duration. They put those four variables into another model and they called that rifle LN, and that you'll see is the title of, of uh, the manuscript. And they applied that model to their testing cohort and they found that the model was highly predictive and it was predictive of, of a 10 year incidence of lupus nephritis. And what you see uh, on the slide here is showing the receiver operating characteristic curves of that model in the testing cohort. And you see the area under the curve was, was 0.7. So it had good performance, good sensitivity and specificity for uh, predicting the onset of lupus nephritis in this group. And so I think this is very interesting for all of us as we care for our patients with lupus and trying to think about who of our patients are more at risk for severe outcomes, severe disease manifestations. And so we can think about these predictors, the young age of onset, pediatric onset patients, male sex, um, and again, the double-strand DNA positivity, none of these come as a surprise to us, right, that take care of lupus patients. But I think it's it's helpful to have this level of data to help us and to support us. And I think as we move into the future, Ed, you already mentioned all of your work um, trying to look at a variety of molecular and clinical biomarkers to predict different outcomes in lupus. I think that this is where our field is, is moving. And this is where a lot of work is going and trying to develop these predictors, these biomarkers to help us with personalized medicine approaches for our patients. And so I think this paper is a nice um, step in that direction. Yeah, I thought that. Um, it, 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 you know, it, you do realize when you read it how difficult it is to do. I, I was yes. quite impressed with that. You know, they needed a lot of people and a lot of follow-up. So, um, you know, but um, and, and I, I, it's important to bear in mind, this is a study done in Hong Kong and all the patients with Chinese ancestry. The rate of LN is really, really high here, isn't yeah. there? So things may be different in other populations. But um, I think the I guess the main thing I, 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 I the main thing it just makes you think, isn't it, is if I go to clinic tomorrow and I see a new or an early onset patient and maybe they are of Chinese descent and they've got double-stranded DNA and quite young age of onset, but they don't have lupus nephritis. Am I going to act differently here? Right. You know, if they have what appear to be relatively mild symptoms, but with lots of these negative predictors, am I going to say, I'm going to be a bit more aggressive with my immunosuppressant therapy at an earlier stage because I might be able to prevent something here. And I, I think that's, that's, 
So that seems to me to be the important message for the clinic. Of course, on the AUC curve, there isn't a very clear threshold, is there? It's not pointing out that above this score, act below that score, don't. These are continuous things, aren't they? So you still have to put it all together as a clinician, don't you? To... Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's such a great point. You know, do we change um, how we approach therapy for these patients um, that have this kind of high risk score? Uh, do we monitor them more carefully, more closely? And I think these are questions that uh, we have to think about and study over the course of time, because as you said, it's not all or nothing, right? Yeah. And there are plenty of patients who are not going to have these predictors that are still going to develop lupus nephritis, right? So they have to yeah. also be monitored very carefully. That's right. But there's just some people who early in the stage, you get a bad feeling that this is, yes. I, I, I feel like I'm going to be getting phone calls in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yes. I want to, uh, I want to do something about it now, not, not just wait for it to happen. Correct. Um, yeah. Correct. Okay. So um, we'll go on to the last paper now, which is, this is the one about neuropsychiatric lopus. And again, it's, it's, there's a bit of a link to that theme of early and late onset. So, um, this was a paper done in centres in Cleveland and Maryland, and um, what they this is it's a literature review, but it's quite a, it's a it's a literature review with quite a focused question because what they were talking that and and it's, it's interesting again. It's the, I saw a patient just like this in the clinic yesterday. So neuropsychiatric lupus already difficult to diagnose, as everybody knows. Even with MRI scans, you can still sometimes be left unclear. Um, and they said that we know patients with later onset of lupus are usually considered to be a bit milder and have a bit less renal involvement. Um, so they asked about the diagnosis of neuropsychiatric SLE in earlier onset or later onset patients. Um, and they, they, so they've, went, they've, they've gone through the literature and looked at different features of neuropsychiatric lupus, particularly seizures, psychosis, and neuropathies. And what they found was that early onset patients were more likely to get seizures and psychosis and more likely to have anything neuropsychiatric overall. Late onset patients were a lot less likely to have seizures and psychosis, but they did have an increased risk of neuropathies which they didn't seem to be able to explain through other comorbidities like diabetes, for example. Um, so I thought what it, and, and this is where it really reminded me of somebody I saw in the clinic yesterday is that um, you, you need, you, with seizures or psychosis, it's often a bit clearer that it's something to do with the lopus, but the real care is when you've got just cognitive dysfunction and cognitive decline. And when you're getting into the older, age groups you'll be you'll have to, there's this dilemma is this due to lupus or is this due to sort of more conventional causes it's just important to remember that the pre-test probability of lupus is going down with age and therefore the risk of it being due to other diseases is going up which is what the conclusion i reached with my with with, with my patient in later onset patients with lupus of course lupus could accelerate um, vascular disease and so it could be vascular, you could have vascular dementia, which is not completely separate from the lupus. It might be accelerated by the lupus, but it's not inflammation that's going to respond to immunosuppressants. Right. No, I completely agree. And I think the challenge, I, I love this paper as well, because it addresses 
this challenging, um, I think, manifestation, right, which is neuropsychiatric lupus. And as you said, Ed, thinking about attribution for any of these manifestations in a, in a, in a patient with lupus who presents with neuropsychiatric manifestations, and we can think about, for instance, the ACR classification scheme of, of how these are defined and, and the nomenclature for that. Um, mm -hmm. It's so important to drill down and try to and and try to understand to the best of our ability, is that manifestation actually secondary to active lupus, either through ischemic mechanisms or inflammatory mechanisms, or is there a concomitant diagnosis? And I think that's yeah. what I find so challenging, right, with neuropsychiatric lupus. Very difficult. Uh, the other thing that makes it difficult, actually, um, the ULAR guidelines that were presented uh, last month uh, showed this, that uh, they talk about the, the non-renal lupus trials that we have for new products like belimumab and anifrolumab, but those trials exclude neuropsychiatric patients. Um, and so actually when it comes to the, came to the recommendation for neuropsychiatric lupus, there was much more emphasis on other other older drugs and maybe ones that don't, don't have the same level of RCT evidence, but do have case series evidence like cyclobosomide and, and rituximab when you come to the neuropsychiatric part of that. So still a lot of unanswered questions for this group of people. Yes, absolutely. And we need more, we need more studies and we need yeah. to get somehow get these patients into our studies. So I, I agree. Okay. So that's the end of the, the papers for this month. So that's all we've got time for. So thanks for joining me, Maria. It's great to have your insight and, and, and your, your, your expertise on, on all of these papers. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, you can find the full slide decks of the Aguirre, Ariens and Chan papers on lupus-forum.com. Uh, so you can access that for free and download the PowerPoint presentations to use in your own teaching or your journal clubs. Um, uh, and if you register, you'll get email updates when we have something new out. You can also look at Lupus Forum, uh, all one word, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So thanks again and see you next time. Bye bye.